This is an episode that we wanted to go ahead and get out there because, as you may know, it is National Suicide Prevention Month. And with the pandemic and the challenges that all of us have faced this past year, uh, we're seeing a rise in loneliness. We're obviously seeing worsening of the pre-existing problem with burnout in healthcare. And we want everyone to be safe. And we want everyone to know that there's somebody out there who cares very specifically about you. And in order to, to make that very clear, Alden has been very generous and frankly, uh, very brave in sharing his personal story. Now, I have to say, before we get into this, that this is not a show that offers medical advice. Neither my guest nor I are experts in this field. Nothing that I say or that he says should be interpreted as giving medical advice. If you have a challenge with mental health or behavioral health, you should contact a qualified health professional. At the end of this episode, we'll include in the show notes some numbers that you can contact if you're having a challenge and you need to seek that kind of personal help from someone who is a qualified health professional. Uh, the second thing I want to say is there's no doctor-patient relationship uh, formed here. What we're trying to do is just make sure that everybody understands that you're not alone and that there are options available and, and that there are people out there who care very much about you. So without further ado, uh, please join me in welcoming Alden Groves to the podcast. You flow like a slow pen, look on, no hands, look on, no frame, no shame. Numb me up like a game, can't focus, shake again. Which moment makes a man cause I'm hoping it just begins. Welcome, I'm Dr. Robert Groves, your host for the Groves Connection podcast. The Groves Connection brings you intimate conversations with pundits, providers, patients, leaders and lay people, all to help us understand a contradiction. How can our healthcare system be both magnificent and yet so deeply flawed? We're going inside healthcare to talk candidly with those who know. What they have to say may delight, surprise, frustrate, or at times even anger you. But I invite you to get curious and listen to the truth about healthcare and those who want to fix it. Maybe the answers have been there all along. We just need to make the connection. In this episode, I sit down with a very special guest indeed, because today I get to talk to my son, Alden Groves. And he's not only my son, he is also the editor and consultant for The Groves Connection. He is a singer, songwriter, producer, and recording artist. In fact, he made the song that you're listening to right now. And by the way, every part of it is his, all his, in terms of writing, performing, everything. He has a YouTube channel, by the way, that highlights problems with bipolar disorder that he has personally faced. And he talks about his personal experience with coping skills. He has a new album out called The Comfortable Dark. That's available on all platforms. And uh, he's just a really stand-up guy, though I'm a little bit biased. I tell you what, how about I let him speak for himself? Are you ready to connect? Action. 
Welcome to the Groves Connection. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. I have heard so much about you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For those of you uh, uh, who are not familiar, uh, Alden is uh, both my son and an integral part of the Groves Connection in that uh, he does all of the sound editing and gives sound advice with regards to to content, uh, etc. So uh, thank you for that. But uh, that's not the purpose of today's discussion. I thought it might be uh, interesting to talk with you, Alden, about, about mental health and what that experience has been like for you. And, and we'll get into that in, in some detail. I don't know if there's anything that you'd like to, to share about your, your background and where you come from and how you wound up where you are today and what you aspire to be, but I'm going to give you the floor to take it from there. Yeah, totally. Uh, so, so again, thanks for having me on the show. I have been working on all the episodes so far, and that's been really cool. I've, I've learned a lot from that, so I encourage anybody to listen to all of those. I've come to this from a place of mostly, I don't want to say ignorance, but it's I'm certainly not where you are or where a lot of your guests are in terms of having a ton of experience on the back end, knowing all of the three-letter acronyms. I was born in Greeley, in 1994, I spent most of my time growing up in Boulder, Colorado. You know, there's little all the little L cities that orbit Boulder, like Longmont, Louisville, Lafayette. And I've lived in just about all of them. With regards to mental health, basically the, the perspective that I come to it from, and I've talked a little bit about this on my YouTube channel. I have some videos about my experience specifically with my bipolar diagnosis. You know, I've, I've recovered from addiction. I have been clean from opiate addiction for about 10 years now, actually. I think it's almost exactly 10 years at this point. Um, Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It actually is just dawning on me that I'm coming up on or maybe just past the 10 year anniversary of that because that would have been when I was uh, 17 that I that I got clean. You helped me get treatment and you supported me through a lot of that. So good on you. Thank you so much. Yes, of course. Uh, I, I have a vested interest in your well-being. So, you know, I, one, one of the questions that I have, Alden, and, and I don't know that we've ever talked about this directly, certainly indirectly. We've probably covered this ground before, but when you think back now, knowing that you have a diagnosis of, mm-hmm. of bipolar disorder, and you can give us more details on what you've been told about that if you wish, but thinking back, you know, even growing up, childhood, young adulthood, how did that impact your life and what did you think about it at the time? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. It's interesting because I am very much a skeptical person. And one of the things, especially for people that know Boulder, Colorado, it's very much uh, Uh, It's like hippie, dippy, you know, you can probably solve your problems with essential oils kind of place. And I was very much inundated with this thing of like, you know, don't get on medication. Don't do this. Don't do that. And when one is not seeking medication, the treatment plans for a lot of mental disorders are are pretty similar. You want to get your diet right. Oh, just to clarify before we really get into this, just for liability's sake, I'm not a medical professional. None of this is medical advice. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Just to to get that cleared up. My therapist, I've I've been in therapy pretty much my whole life. I think that it's, I think everyone should do it. Uh, It's been really useful for me. It's been good coping skills, helping me to reframe things that have happened. and, And obviously- being able to stay clean for 10 years has been in no small part based on learning those coping mechanisms. 
my therapist started alluding to me that I might have bipolar probably 2015, I think is about right. My attitude was very much like, okay, well, maybe. And I know that there is this problem that has been brought up of overdiagnosis of of mental disorders, right? Where it's, Mm -hmm. you know, the conventional thing that people say is like, oh, you're just willing to give ADHD medication to anybody who, to any kid who shows up and can't focus. Yeah, yeah. You know, anybody who shows up to the hospital and is sad is put on antidepressants. You know, there's there's all that talk of that. And I think there's an extent to which that's true. Yeah. And also you don't want to go too far in the other direction, right? Of like, okay, well, no matter how bad I feel, I shouldn't explore those options. Yeah, you're coming, you're coming to it from... Uh, or with an attitude of a rational skeptic, I would suggest. But yeah. in the cultural context of Boulder, Colorado, where you know traditional medicine is not held in as high esteem by many of the, let's call them many cultures that exist in that environment. Yeah, it's further complicated by the fact that a lot of these diagnoses look really similar. Mm-hmm. So especially in young boys and young men, bipolar disorder and ADHD, they look really similar in how they present. Mm-hmm. They are subtle distinctions. And the trouble that I had, interestingly enough, was I was perhaps a little too well-versed on the subject. So uh, one of the things that they use to diagnose people with mental disorders, it's called the DSM-5. The trouble that I had was I knew all the questions. (laughs) So like, I know if I say yes to this, then that's going to steer me more towards the ADHD diagnosis. And I know if I say yes to this, then it's going to steer me more towards the bipolar diagnosis. So at that point, if I know all the questions, that's the same as self-diagnosis. Yeah. You know, and that was what I was really trying to avoid, which is ironic because my therapist had basically told me in no uncertain terms, like, I, you do have bipolar. I was just stubborn. I was being stubborn, I'll be honest. Yeah, um, yeah. But what I ended up doing, there is this thing, and and I would recommend it to anybody that's in the same boat, um, although it's not medical advice, but I had testing, like proper ADHD testing done, where they had me do all of these little things. Like I sat in front of a TV screen and there would be like a little dot that would flash. And sometimes it would be a white dot and sometimes it would be a red dot. And I had to press a button every time it was a red dot. And that was meant to measure my attention span because I did it for like an hour. Oh, wow. And they had me do an IQ test and measured different facets of cognitive function against each other to see if, if it coordinated with ADHD. It's much easier to test for ADHD than it is for bipolar. So the hope was, okay, if we rule out ADHD, here we are. You know, what's interesting about what you're talking about here is, is this is a problem in psychological diagnoses is there is so much overlap and anybody can go online and discover what kinds of questions that they're going to be asked. And so mm-hmm. a purely subjective diagnosis, uh, it, it has, to, uh, I'll put it this way, it has large error bars. Yes. In other words, uh, you may miss a diagnosis uh, pretty frequently and you may overdiagnose pretty frequently based on all of those variables. And so having some sort of objective test to at least exclude one diagnosis makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, How did that come about? Was that recommended by your therapist? Is that how that happened? Yeah. So at the time, and she's got her own private practice now, but at the time she worked for a company called the Matis, M-E-T-I-S, Matis Center. Mm -hmm. And she was a therapist there at the time. And they also had psychologists who were able to do that ADHD testing. And just for me, as someone who, like you said, I was was very skeptical and I just didn't want, the thing about it is like diagnosis has so thoroughly informed how I live my life that if I 
were at all doubtful of it, it would be much more challenging. Yeah, let, let, let me ask you another question uh, along those lines. Was there, in your mind, a stigma attached to having a, a mental health diagnosis at all? Now, I, I would suggest that there is not as much of a stigma attached to ADHD, in part mm. because it's so common, and in part because it's almost... Uh, you know, in, in some circles anyway, a badge of honor. Yes, I have ADHD. Mm. And, and was there a stigma issue that made you lean one way or the other? Ab- absolutely. And and it's also, you know, uh, one of the things that my therapist told me was like, you know, we can get you this proper diagnosis, but that's, you know, now I am legally speaking a person with a mental disorder, right? So yeah. when people talk, for example, about like people with mental dis- uh, disabilities shouldn't be allowed to own firearms, it's like, well, now I'm a person that that would affect. Now, uh, yeah, uh, any yeah. of those any of those regulations that people think like, oh, crazy people shouldn't be allowed to do this. Now I'm on the books as one of those people that is is yeah. presumed to need that extra supervision, that is presumed to need this, that, and the other thing. And the hope would be that that also comes with increased support. And there's been an extent to which that's been true. You know, it's helped mm-hmm. me to navigate conversations at work, for example. Yeah, yeah. I will say the the things that are prohibited from people with a diagnosis, I would say probably outweigh the things that are offered to people with a diagnosis, unfortunately. Hmm, um, other yeah. than, obviously, medication. So being right. able to be prescribed Lamotrigine, that's been so massively helpful that... Uh, I would say it's all been worth it. So it's not a subtle difference that you've noticed God, no. on taking God, medication. No. So I got my diagnosis and wasn't immediately seeking medication. I was like, right. this is going to be a useful thing. You know, I bought a couple books on bipolar and like, these are coping strategies for people with bipolar specifically. These are things to be aware of within yourself. Mm-hmm. These are dietary things that you should do. I wasn't immediately seeking medication. It got to a point for me, I have what are called psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, where it's like- Okay, explain to us what that is. Yeah, so a uh, the word basically psychogenic means mentally or stress-triggered. Non-epileptic, meaning it's not associated with an epilepsy diagnosis. And then seizure, obviously, being fairly self-explanatory. So a psychogenic non-epileptic seizure is basically my bipolar swings, especially mixed episodes, which is basically a manic and a depressive episode at the same time. They can happen at the same time. I or, did not- uh know that, frankly. I mean, yeah. I, I'm certainly familiar with cycling and mm-hmm. and cyclothymic is sometimes a term used for swings in mood that don't reach the level of bipolar diagnosis. But, yeah. but describe to us what, what, what a mixed episode is. How does that feel? Yeah. Uh, what happens to you? I'll describe a little bit about my depressive episodes and I'll describe a little bit about my manic episodes and then we'll kind of describe how they blend together. So I have a bipolar type 2 diagnosis. There's bipolar type 1 and bipolar type 2. Type 1 is mania proper. So it's like you think that you're, maybe you think you're a god, maybe you st- suffer from acute psychosis, you experience maybe hallucinations or delusions of grandeur. Much of the time, not all of the time, but much of the time, people who experience mania need to be hospitalized because of, you know, they, they won't sleep for days at a time. They won't, there's all sorts of stuff that's associated with that. Yeah, so that that, that that's a full loss of connection to reality. Yes, exactly. Uh, that, that, that's what characterizes mania, as well as obviously being in an elevated mood. Uh, okay. It's kind of a full disconnect. Um, what I experience as someone with bipolar 2 is the more mild 
form of that, which is called hypomania. And that mm-hmm. at first was was kind of subtle, right? Because it's uh, just for some context for the listeners, uh, the song that plays at the beginning and ending of The Groves Connection, I also wrote and produced and performed and, and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. And so for me as a musician, some of the first ways that my hypomania would present would be I'm going to be famous. I'm going to be able to do whatever I want. I should just invest in my music career and quit my job and this kind of stuff. So you can see how that's distinctly different from thinking that I'm the king of king of the world, but it's the same flavor mm-hmm. and it causes, you know, a lot of problems. Getting into a ton of credit card debt, uh, having trouble maintaining relationships, or, or for me, my hypomania often ma- manifests as irritableness. I actually, you have an experience with this, where I just wake up and everybody just aggravates me. Every single person I come into contact with, whether they're driving a car or whether they ask me how my day is going, it's like, wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, you know, it's interesting, Alden. Though, as you're describing this, I mean, I think all of us can relate to those types of feelings yeah. at, at times during our lives. And, and really the difference between a diagnosis and a trait is that it in some way interferes with your life, with your ability mm-hmm. to be productive and communal and all of those things that yeah. we, we expect of human beings. Is that is that kind of the way you think about it? Yeah, so that's definitely, uh, there's an extent to which that's the case. And also, you know, that's the diagnostic criteria, right? Like once it starts impacting your ability to live your life, quote unquote, normally, that's when it becomes a disorder. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I think you're right. Obviously, everyone has had the experience of being really frustrated with a friend or a partner or a situation, and then they eat lunch, and then they're not, quite so frustrated with that person, right? Like, I think (laughs) people are really prone to underestimating the effect that things other than their thoughts impact how they uh, approach the world. Yeah, yeah. And I I didn't mean to take us off track there. So so getting back to you're going to describe manic, you're going to describe depressive... And then what a mixed uh, symptom. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so like I said, I experience hypomania, a little bit less intense than mania. Uh, for me, it manifests as irritability uh, and or one of the main kind of thoughts associated with it is I'm too good for this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like I, I shouldn't have to do all of this crap to right, live my life. Right. And so mm-hmm. there's this uh, there's this tendency to be really frustrated, really irritated with people, really uh, dissatisfied with life because it's like this feeling that I deserve more. Or it, it, it's sort of towards grandiosity, if you will. Yeah, it, it, exactly, that, yeah. exactly. That's exactly right. For what it's worth, that's not how hypomania manifests for everybody. For some people, it feels really good, um, and sometimes for me, it does. For some people, it's like this sense of euphoria or, you know, this feeling of connectedness or whatever it may be. And people can be wildly productive during one of these phases. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I said, kind of speaking to my experience as an artist, you know, this album I just put out, there was a 10 day stretch where every day I worked for 12 to 14 hours on different songs from the album. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, I don't lose a lot of sleep. A lot of people have trouble sleeping. That's actually one of the things that made it really hard to diagnose my bipolar is that I sleep enough when I'm hypomanic. Mm -hmm. For a lot of people, it becomes they sleep for two hours a night and wake up pop out of bed feeling bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and are ready to go. I would hazard a guess that much more people are familiar with depression, Mm -hmm. but probably to the extent that people have a lot of misconceptions about it. Mm -hmm. For me, it's like a lack of motivation to do even basic stuff. Okay, Get out of bed is the easy one, right? Like I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to eat food. And of course, that's a self-compounding problem of like, I can't 
if I don't eat food, I feel worse, like we had talked about. Mm -hmm. That makes me more depressed, et cetera, et cetera. And the cycle is is self-perpetuating. It's also associated with a lot of negative self-talk. Mm. It's kind of the inverse of the mania thing. Uh, right. the, the mania thing is I'm too good for this. The depression is I'm not good enough for what I have. I don't deserve all the stuff that I have. Um, I don't deserve the mm -hmm. friends that I have. I don't deserve to have all of this support. And I, I, I don't deserve, for example, to go take a shower. It doesn't, it doesn't matter kind of thing. Now, now I want to reiterate that uh, you're not a health professional. None of this is medical advice. I am not an expert in psychology. And so um, anything that I say should not be considered medical advice. And as you're describing the variations in symptomatology, what occurs to me is this is something that you really should uh, talk with a professional about in order to determine uh, a diagnosis. This is not something accurate. that self-diagnosis lends itself uh, too easily. That's that's very accurate. And and getting an outside perspective, you know, is mm -hmm. so important, especially from someone that has the training and the understanding of human psychology enough to be able to comment on it. It's really wild to me how few people appreciate or see the inherent value in that. And and it happens a lot too, where people will be like, ah, oh, I should be in therapy and then just don't do it. And that blows my mind. I've been in therapy for so long and it's been invaluable to me. Let, let me ask a question about that too. Is, is, you know, you've made the commitment and you've been doing it for a long time, but do you worry about coverage for therapy? Is it a financial burden to you? How do you, how do you think about that? I mean, are you trapped in a job you don't want because you don't want to lose that coverage? I, I, I think a lot of folks struggle in this area and they don't want to get started because they think of it as, well. I don't have an extra X number of dollars yeah. a month that I can spare for this. What, what's your experience? There? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I've been fortunate. For example, when I went to the Matus Center, that was covered under my plan. And when my uh, therapist started her own practice, she was willing to put me on a sliding scale. So now my mm -hmm. uh, financial relationship to her is, is independent of my insurance. And that's, that's very fortunate to me. And that's a thing that I think a lot of people probably should be aware of is that a lot of therapists, if you're uninsured or underinsured, or your therapist just doesn't work directly with insurance companies, there is often a sliding scale. That's a great point. And, and you're right. A lot of people simply may not be aware of that. And and if a particular therapist doesn't, then, then you can look around and often find one who does. Well, I think uh, especially people that are not, that don't have a lot of disposable income, they'll go to the website of a therapist and they'll be like, I wonder how much they cost. And then they'll see mm -hmm. something that's like $200 a session. And they're like, there's right. no way. And of course, it, it, it is the hardest time when you need a therapist and are trying to find one. But it is, if you, if you can manage it, put in that extra effort to send an email being like, hey, I think that from what I've seen on your website, it would be really helpful if we work together. This is my financial situation. I'm in a really tight spot and I would love to be able to see a professional right now. Do you offer a sliding scale? Mm -hmm. Kind of what, like what you talk about a lot on the podcast. It's an industry made up of really good people. People become therapists because they want to help others, you know? Yeah, yeah. They're often, in my experience, sympathetic to sliding scale conversations. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right now, I, I'm able to afford seeing my therapist about one to two times a month. Mm -hmm. It's still, even if I'm only able to go once a month, once every couple months, it's uh, still massively beneficial. Just being able to get an outside perspective on stuff. Uh, now, uh, it, it's going to be, I, or at least I'm having uh, difficulty conceptualizing. You've described your hypomania. Yep. And you've described the, the depression aspect. And yep. they're 
almost, you even described it as almost opposite. So yep. how does that manifest when they occur together, a mixed episode, as you call it? Again, I'm only speaking to my own experience, but for me, it is the it is the worst part of both sensations. So I talked a little bit about the aggravation. It's uh, It starts to become, rather than people or situations, it's like uh, even basic sensations, like a noise that is a little bit too loud or being slightly hungry. All of those things become overwhelming. I, I, I will have anxiety attacks because basic sensations become too overwhelming. And this is where we really start to get into why this is a disorder and why I needed to be medicated for it. Right. Not to say that people with symptoms less extreme than this shouldn't be medicated, but this for me was what kind of started to push it to where it was like, no, I, I need to be able to go to work. Right. Like I talked about the psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, the irritability would be such that I would start having a seizure because all of the basic sensations of existing became so aggravating that I would have a seizure. Um, and then okay. the depression okay. would kick in at that point and I uh, you know, wouldn't be able to get off the floor for hours and hours and hours at a time, sometimes until the day was over. Yeah. So, wow. So it, it would be this this thing of having a seizure followed by this really extreme lethargy. You know, if I wanted to go to the kitchen to get a snack, I would have to crawl on all fours up the stairs, leaning on the wall for support kind of thing, because it was so hard to send the signals to my body to keep moving. Okay. You know, you think about, oh, I'm too good for this and I'm not good enough for this. You think in your head, right? Those are antithetical thoughts, but they're really not. You can think like, I don't deserve to be in this much pain and I am anyway, and there's nothing I can do about it. That's like a, right. you know, the kind of thought that one can have is like, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. I don't think I can handle it. Okay. Okay. So, so give us an idea of what the frequency of these cycles were before you started uh, using medication mm -hmm. to control them. You know, how often was this happening up, down, mixed? What was your... Yeah. So it's not like a light switch, right? It's not like I wake up one day and I'm hypomanic and I wake up one day or I'm depressed or I'm not. It's like a waveform. Mm -hmm. You know, over the course of a week or two, I'll ramp up to a high and then ramp back down. And then that'll be associated with maybe a crash in mood later because it's like... I've burnt off all my energy in that hypomania. A ton of variants, but definitely multiple times a year. Mm -hmm. I would say every couple months was typical at the time. It was also, it got worse over time, which is which is one of the things that is my understanding of bipolar is that when untreated, unmedicated, it uh, it just gets worse over time. And, 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 it's, and it's your, I guess I would say it this way. You don't believe that there was any way to talk your way out of this. I, uh, I mean, by talk therapy or meditation or all of the other non-medical uh, interventions that are very prominent in the Boulder area, but, but have become more prominent. I mean, there's yeah. this notion sometimes that I won't need medication because I have these other tools. But yep. in your estimation, that was not an option for, for you. For me, it's worth mentioning that uh, I, I tried all of that stuff. It, it, it would be hard to name something that I hadn't tried. I had a <laughs> uh, regular meditation practice for uh, a long time. I've slipped a little bit on that recently. I had a regular meditation practice. I was really diligent about my diet, eating vegetables and greens with every single meal. I, I had an exercise routine that was consistent five days a week. I did all of the stuff that you're kind of supposed to do that is sort of conventionally prescribed as these alternatives to medication. And obviously I, I, I had been in talk therapy 
therapy the whole time as much as I could afford. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was just insufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a certain amount of stress. Basically the way I think about it is like, you know, especially in recovery from addiction, learned a lot of really powerful coping skills, mm-hmm. specifically DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. And I love DBT. It was really effective coping skills for a ton of the stuff that I had struggled with prior. Right. But at a certain point, it sensationally became so much that it was no longer a thought-based thing. It was, if you can't move, what do you, what's the, what's the thought you're supposed to have of, uh, about that, you know? Yeah. Now I'm, I'm very interested in how you and your therapist arrived at a specific medication and what your experience was like of, you know, taking that initially and and did you have regrets initially? It's like, gosh, I don't want to be on this. It's causing X or Y. How how long it took you to titrate it? Walk us through that experience. I did my own research and my first inclination when I looked into it for myself was I want to try Lamotrigine because by and large, for most people, the side effects are very mild. By and large, for most people, it helps, especially with the downswings uh, in terms of like depressive episodes. Mm-hmm. And it's just an easy, cheap, very tolerable medication was my understanding. Okay. It took a while. One of the frustrating things about Lamictal is that you have to very slowly increase the dose because if you don't, there's a really, uh, there's a risk, a very slight, but serious risk of developing, I can't remember what it's called. There's some sort of skin condition that uh, can actually be life-threatening if you up the dose too quickly. And and so the titration process, how long did that take? When did you start noticing a difference in your irritability, moods, you know, the, the sensations uh, abating? For me, just knowing that there was, that help was on the way was a huge help. So uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's like a placebo thing or just knowing that there's a way out, like that this is going to help. Basically, as soon as I started taking the very, very tiny dose, um, the 25 milligrams that I started at, I started feeling a bit better. Um, and okay. then every couple weeks would go up by another 25. And did you notice that difference as well with each titration? Did you notice a, a, a difference, subtle or otherwise, in control? <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm having a bit of trouble remembering, but yes, I, I think I remember as I increased it, it just got a little bit better and a little bit better. And of course, that was also coupled with learning more about bipolar and developing skills that were specific to my bipolar diagnosis rather than sort of broadly, this is how you deal with stress. More specifically, like, for example, if I notice that I'm starting to be in a hypomanic episode, I stop drinking coffee because I know that that stimulant activity is going to aggravate my mood. So if I notice like I'm waking up in the morning and I immediately feel very alert and I feel like I don't need coffee, it's like, okay, well then I should, you know, why would I engage with the routine of drinking coffee? I'm already very awake. Just making those adjustments, having that awareness of my own mood and where I'm at in my mood cycle made a huge difference. So it's this interesting thing, like you had kind of mentioned, there are all these non-medicative approaches and those were helpful too. But one of the ways I think about medication is it makes things tolerable enough that 
one can focus on those other, it, it gets you off the floor for me, literally. Mm-hmm. It got me off the floor so that I could focus on those other things. Yeah. You know, and, and my next question is, if, as you think about your, and these are hard questions to answer mm-hmm. perhaps, but as you think about how you were before you started actively taking medication for this and how you are now, would you say you're 10% improved, 90% improved, 60%? What, right. what would you say? Yeah. So the first major change was starting on medication. And I would say that once I got that dialed in, that was probably a 40% improvement. I still very much had episodes. They would still last for kind of a long time, but it was, you know, I was able to go to work, for example. I was able to work an Mm -hmm. eight-hour shift and maybe I didn't feel very good the whole time, but I wasn't collapsing on the floor. And that would still happen sometimes, but I was able to keep my job. I was able to maintain healthy friendships, relationships. I was able to pay the rent. Yes. So that was the first uh, improvement. And 40%, it maybe doesn't sound like a lot, but it was only that last 10% that made it so that I needed to get medicated. So having any relief from that at all uh, was huge. More recently, and this is where we really need to emphasize that this is not medical advice because this has not been studied well at all, uh, but more recently I've been on the uh, ketogenic diet for for a a couple months now. I I think Mm -hmm. probably two or three months now. And that has been closer to an 80% improvement. Wow. And I have been, frankly, shocked at how well it has helped me. Interesting. You know, there are some early studies, uh, associations between nutritional ketosis, a well-balanced approach to nutritional ketosis and and stabilizing of moods in a variety of mental health uh, disorders that, that are characterized by mood swings. That's very, very interesting. And uh, as you think into your future now, is there a time when you might talk to your therapist about de-escalating medications or is that not something you've talked about or how do you think about that? You know, it's so inexpensive. And for me, it's just like, it would be more fuss than it's worth. Probably. Um, I tried Mm. going off of my medication kind of middle of 2020 because it was, you know, my routine got disrupted. I I wasn't uh, going to work. I was on unemployment for a bit just because I work with the public. And so it was uh, not the safest time. You you got laid off because the business that you work at had to shut down for a while, right? Yeah. They didn't shut down proper, but they were, they had such little business that they only needed three people on the staff present. And I, and, you know, I was not one of those yeah, people. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha, okay. Um, so yeah. I tried going off my medication at that time, and, and it worked okay for a while, but then after a certain number of months, it just hit me like a train, and so I got back on my meds. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about, uh, first of all, I think it's very brave and uh, uh, the right thing to do for you to speak about this publicly. Mm. Uh, how did you come uh, to the conclusion that that was okay? I, I think about so many people, uh, for example, uh, uh, you know, physicians, police officers Mm. that would put their jobs at risk, or at least that's the impression if they revealed a diagnosis like this publicly. How how do you think about that? Yeah, it's, it's, a mixed bag for sure. I think there, there's two answers to that, really. One is in my personal life. Like I said, it's actually been very helpful for me at work to be able to give my coworkers and my boss the context of like, this is why my mood is so weird today. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. rather than having people think it's like, 
I have some sort of issue with them or that there's some sort of personal problem there, I can be like, hey, just so you know, this is where my mood is at today. I'm in an upswing right now. I, I might be a little bit more irritable. I'll do my very best to keep that under wraps. But if I snap at you, just know that it's not personal at all. Mm -hmm. Being mm -hmm. able to have conversations with my boss about like, hey, these are the responsibilities that I can commit to. And these are the responsibilities that I shouldn't commit to because of this. That's been my experience. I think the other angle to it, though, uh, I think more to what you're saying, when I really started to speak on it on my YouTube channel was when it was like, okay, now this is something that if you Google me, it's going to be one of the first things that comes up. That was a risk, but I think that for me, one of the things that has made it worth it, and it's a lot of the same reason that I make music, is the people that reach out and say, this so perfectly described my experience. I was feeling so alone before I heard you say this. And I didn't realize that other people were struggling with the same thing. I thought I was just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. 100% of the comments on that video are just people saying, thank you so much. I needed this. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, my knowledge of the people in my community and the people in my life is that people do need that. People need to hear those stories because otherwise you just have this impression that everyone else is just smiling and living their happy little life. And you're the one who is uh, unable to deal with working a normal job. And that's, yes, yeah. you know, that doesn't help anything. You know, it's interesting. And, and I think the pandemic has highlighted this for us, uh, or, or at least made it clear that mental health is health, mm. right? I, I, there, there's no separation between body and mind when it comes to health. And, and I can tell you from my personal experience that inevitably there is an association between chronic disease and, and mental health. And so if you treat one without the other or you stigmatize a particular illness to the point that people are not willing to, mm -hmm. to even share that they have it, then uh, then you're doing a huge disservice because the rest of their life is going to suffer as well. Yep, that's absolutely right. Because, you know, one of the things about, for example, anxiety, uh, for me, it's anxiety largely associated with hypomania, but anxiety more broadly, it's not just a mental thing. You know, people think about the racing thoughts, but it's also, you know, your heart rate goes up. You are tensing up. Your whole body is 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 tensing. And that's that's not the sort of behavior one would associate with being healthy. There is an inextricable connection between mental health and physical. You know, the distinction is almost is almost not that useful. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's it's uh, uh, highly relevant. Uh, mental health is highly relevant to physical health in every mm -hmm. context. Yeah. Uh, so one thing that I wanted to speak to, because because one of the, the the things that obviously comes up a lot with with mental health accessibility, and that can be cost. But for me, one of the things that came up was uh, literal availability. When I received my diagnosis and was trying to find a psychiatrist who could help me with uh, uh, get get a prescription for my medication i was for a long time unable to find any psychiatrist that didn't have either a months long waiting list mm. or with whom you could only meet if you were committed to a mental hospital interesting yeah in colorado i was it's not an exaggeration to say i i looked up psychiatrists that were covered by my insurance provider i called every single one and wasn't able to find anything 
that was covered by my insurance. Yeah. So what I was finally able to do, uh, telehealth. Telehealth was able to connect me with a psychiatrist that I was able to work, that, that I still work with. Uh, specifically what I used, and this is not uh, an endorsement and again, not medical advice, but uh, I worked with Doctor On Demand. I think that it was you mm-hmm. actually that recommended it to me. And uh, that's that's how I'm able to see my psychiatrist. Yeah, cool. And, and so uh, w- we do find that the advancements in technology are paying off, at least in one regard, by by making services accessible. And it, it's not only your situation, you know, you're living in a relatively urban environment mm-hmm. and couldn't find space on anybody's calendar to get an appointment. Yep. And I also think about folks that are in rural areas that mm. uh, maybe they can find space, but it's an hour drive yep. uh, to get to the therapist that they want to see or need to see, or that's covered by their insurance plan. And so this has been a real advancement. And and for those of you who are not aware, you know, if you look at any single category, mental health is far and away the number one category being utilized uh, uh, via the telehealth strategy. Uh, it just lends itself to that uh, quite beautifully. And, and so I guess it shouldn't be a surprise, but it is very gratifying to see that it, that tool is so useful to that community because we, we definitely have a crisis of mental health uh, in this country today. And that was there before the pandemic. And it's essentially guaranteed it's not going to get better after the pandemic. And we have to be prepared for that. And telehealth may be one of the primary strategies to make services widely available to people who need them. Mm -hmm. It's not only more convenient, but you can end up saving a lot of time and 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 money yeah, because yeah. Uh, for example like if i started feeling really bad in a way that i felt like i needed to see my psychiatrist i can just open up the app and there's a very high likelihood that there's an appointment this week probably tonight that's been my experience wow. just set it up and then the same day or the next day i have a call and and the prescription is filled and i go down to the supermarket and boom it's just sorted yeah so different from the experience i had trying to see other psychiatrists there were all these intake forms you know this thing and that thing and then it was like we'll call you and then they didn't and then you would call back and it's like they have availability next month and when you need help uh, and when you need help for mental health you need it right now yeah not next month right yep and especially at the time, I needed medication. I wasn't in the best spot to be navigating these complex systems. Right. You know, it wasn't like I was fully capable driving around and being like, hello, sir, will you please help me explore this? It's, it's like, I need this, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, do I have to get committed to a mental hospital? to get basic care. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not, that doesn't help anybody. Yeah. Do, do, do you have any regrets about uh, coming forward publicly and, and sharing your experience? Are there any things, or is there anything that you would do differently than what you've done? So in terms of what I have done, I feel content with it, but I think that it has illustrated for me a lot of, you know, potential areas for growth and, and a lot of the, the things that Maybe I could do, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Alden, you know, this is uh, National Suicide Prevention Month. Mm -hmm. And so this next question is not particularly easy for me to ask, but were there times uh, based on your diagnosis, your life circumstances, et cetera, that you felt Mm -hmm. uh, suicidal? Or talk to me about that. Yeah, I, uh, I have been very fortunate in that my specific personal experience with mental health has not featured a lot of suicidality. Mm-hmm. That has not been 
a core component of my depressive episodes for a lot of people with bipolar it is, or even just with major depressive disorder it is. Mm -hmm. I think it's that kind of what we were talking about, that sense of I can't deal with this. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, of This is so intense and so stressful that I am unable to cope with the stress of it. Naturally, that thought pathway leads to some dark places, right? Yeah, yeah. For me, fortunately, those thoughts don't tend to hang around that much. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, they're infrequent and usually short-lived, but I've, I've definitely uh, experienced them. And more than that, I've known a ton of people who experience and deal with that. And the infrastructure for dealing with that is is woefully inadequate. And that's assuming people know that the res know the resources that they do have available, which many people don't. Right, right. And and uh, we will certainly uh, addendum some, uh, you know, at least hotline numbers that can be called, yep. uh, et cetera, to, to this episode so that people have a way to respond, at least to get a start in responding. And uh, I, I, I would encourage anyone who is approaching any of those dark places Step one is reach out. Yep. Reach out to to get professional help. Reach out to somebody that you know. Let them know what's going on. Uh, because I, it, I, I just feel for people who are in that place and, and want them to be able to have an emergency plan, right? Yeah. When they start to feel themselves moving towards that cliff, Absolutely. a plan uh, that they can almost without thinking put in place to interrupt that uh, that yep. cascade of, of feelings and, and notions. That's what you just touched on there from my personal experience is a really important component of it that for me in recovery was really important because it, there's some uh, there's some similarities between my experiences with uh, addiction and my experiences with suicidality in that the spiral of thoughts leading to addiction is very much the same, right? Of like, you know, what's the point in staying clean? I don't need to do, this is too much for me to deal with. I'll just use, uh, I'll just use drugs to, to deal with this. Mm -hmm. So much of the, coping strategies that I learned to deal with that is about interrupting that spiral. Mm -hmm. Being able to identify that, be like, this is a really unusually dark thought for me. I need to understand that that is only true in the context of my mood. And that, right. just having that little bit, and meditation helped a lot to cultivate that for me, but being able to have that extra degree of separation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to emphasize, you're talking about your very personal experience yes. with a, a diagnosis of bipolar disorder and with addiction. And I'm not necessarily recommending that anyone else take your particular path, but Correct. I think it's useful to have your insights as someone who's actually experienced these things. And to your point earlier, there, there are so many people out there who have not been able or willing or in a place where they feel like they can come forward and actually share these experiences and get uh, the support that all of us need from time to time. Uh, so I, I, I just encourage everyone to to become more open about this. We need to get rid of the stigma. Uh, health is health, whether mental, physical, or otherwise. And we need to get away from judging people. We don't judge people that are born with type 1 diabetes. We don't judge people that are, are born with disorders of metabolism. We don't judge people. And we shouldn't judge people, although 
to some extent, I think we still do, that, that have type 2 diabetes or that have, uh, you know, other disorders which we, well, if they just do this or that, they wouldn't have it. And mm-hmm. I'm here to, to tell you that that's not true. I am pre-diabetic, having done everything almost uh, exactly right before getting diagnosed. And uh, some of it is the hand we're dealt and getting support to play that hand as well as we can to make our lives productive, to contribute to society, to make it enjoyable to be here in this, you know, glorious world. There's no substitute for getting the help that each individual needs at some point in their life to to fully actualize their their existence here. And uh, I, I just think that's incredibly important to say that out loud. And I think you're incredibly brave for doing that. And I, and I very much appreciate it. I, I just want to add one extra thing onto that, just in terms of the stigma, which is if someone in your life comes to you and says, I'm experiencing depression, I'm experiencing anxiety, something that is abnormal, right? Believe them. You know, I've heard so many stories from people who say, you know, I'm experiencing depression and I went to my friend or my dad or whomever and they get this kind of message of like, oh, well, everybody gets sad sometimes or, oh, well, everybody gets anxious sometimes. I I think what people don't realize is uh, partially because of this stigma, but also just in general, for someone to get to the point where they want to tell their support system, that they're struggling with something, that's already such a huge risk for them. That's already taken so much courage for them to bring that to you. And if you dismiss it, it, it makes it so much harder. Yeah. So if someone comes to you and says, I'm, I'm struggling with something that I don't know how to deal with, believe them. Right. The bias should always be towards taking those sorts of comments very, very seriously, the same way you would if somebody said, I'm having crushing chest pain and I can't breathe. Yes. That's a really good analogy, I think. Alden, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Of course, you're my son, so I always enjoy (laughs) talking to you. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I do want to get back to, you've got a lot of stuff out there that people can tap into if they're mm-hmm. interested in getting more of a perspective on this. And, and can you share with us how to find you on YouTube and all of the social media? Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to have a pretty unique name, Alden Groves. So you can find me on YouTube, youtube.com slash Alden Groves. You can find me uh, on Spotify, just looking up Alden Groves. Uh, I'm going to put an easy link in the show notes because I have the power to do that. So if you're interested in checking out my music or my YouTube channel or anything like that, the link's just going to be in the show notes for you. You can just go click that. It's my link tree. So it's got everything. Well, I can't help myself. I'm just going to have to say that you are an amazing human being and I'm glad you were born and I'm glad you were born to me. (laughs) I don't know how to respond to that. I love you. You're amazing. And I love you, Dad. All right. And with that, we are going to say goodbye. And again, check out the show notes because we'll have references there to hotlines. We'll have ways to connect with Alden. And uh, I'm sure that we'll have a conversation again in the future. And it has been a blast. Yeah. Thank you again for having me on the show. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Groves Connection, your connection to the inside story on healthcare, featuring in-depth interviews with those who know. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review to keep the connection going, and hit the subscribe button to be sure you never miss a beat. The Groves Connection is produced by Dr. Robert Groves. Original music, editing, and creative direction provided by Alden Groves. 
Production support, content guidance, courtesy of Janae Sharp and Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you for listening. The professional ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and do not reflect those of any current or past employers. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Groves Connection.